When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. With me, Vas Christodoulou. This week's guest may be the most widely admired diplomat of our age, a tireless public servant whose new memoir, Hell and Other Destinations, is not only a record of living through history, but of making it. US Secretary of State from 1997 until 2001, Madeleine Albright's career in public service includes positions in the National Security Council, as US Ambassador to the UN, and on Capitol Hill. She joined Hannah McInnes for a How To Academy livestream delving into her extraordinary life and work. Hello everyone, thank you very much for joining us and to those who I think are still joining us. It's wonderful to see so many of you tuning in. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you on behalf of the How To Academy. Uh, And while I'm sorry we cannot all be in the same room, although looking at the numbers whizzing up, I'm not sure we would actually fit. I'm so pleased that we can still bring brilliant speakers to you with the click of a Zoom button. And certainly not least our guest this evening, um, or this afternoon, or this morning, depending on where you are signing in from. Uh, It gives me such great pleasure to welcome and to be in conversation with Secretary Albright. We have a lot to talk about. Many of our How To Academy events are about how to slow down and find calm in our busy lives. But if you've come for that, then I think you've probably come to the wrong place, because this is about filling life to the very full and um, a tireless dedication to public service. Um, Of course, Secretary Albright was the first female U.S. Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001. And as we discover in her latest memoir, which I'm holding up here, Hell and Other Destinations, which is, of course, the inspiration for our event this evening. She has really barely drawn breath since leaving that post. And her post-government afterlife, as she describes, has been about trying to make every stage of her life more exciting than the last. This, I think, is her seventh book, Um, She runs a business and sits on a number of boards and, as we shall talk about over the next hour, is a committed activist in support of democratic institutions and values, which are things many people feel are increasingly fragile at the moment. There's so much more. Somehow she managed to sum it up in a rather pithy Twitter bio, which has only 50 words allocated to it. So I'm going to read that. It says, author of the New York Times bestseller, Hell and Other Destinations, 64th Sex State, Refugee, prof, bizwoman, pin collector, and occasional drummer. Grateful American. All things I hope we'll be able to talk about over the next hour. But I'm going to endeavour to talk as little as I possibly can. You've come to hear from her um, and not me. So we'll be in conversation for around 45 minutes. um, And then there'll be time at the end for your questions. So please do store them up. And I think I should say that for those of you who haven't read the book... It says in here, people who ask me how I feel about getting older are advised to duck. So you've been warned in your question asking where maybe not to go. Sexual right, thank you so much for joining us. 
at one stage in the book, you say you, you love nature truly, but there's only so much zip you can derive from an oak or a bug or a bee. And you draw energy from people. You're the happiest you can be when bouncing thoughts off others. How are you finding this new, rather different lockdown world where that's concerned? Well, Hannah, it's wonderful to be with you and your audience and have a chance to talk and answer questions. So this is my problem. I am an extrovert, a total extrovert. And I'm trying to learn to be an introvert, and I'm not doing very well at that. <laughs> what is interesting is I have done a lot of Zoom, as I think probably everybody that's uh, on the call and you. The issue is you see the people, but you don't kind of get the vibes that you get when you actually are with people. So it doesn't exactly give me energy, but I'm very glad to be able to do uh, this virtual way of getting together. But the truth is, I feel as though I'm under house arrest. And so uh, I'm doing my best to maintain my sanity. Well, we're very gl glad to have you. And, um, you know, many people feel at the moment they're living in a very particular kind of hell, especially I'm sure in the US, we've had the pandemic and now weeks of protests and riots. And the title of your book is somewhat uncanny. You, you wrote all this before any of this had happened. So what sort of hell uh, are you referring to? What's the significance of your title, Hell and Other Destinations? Well, I, I did write the book before the pandemic, but uh, I'm surprised at how germane the title is now. But the way that I thought about it, the most famous thing I ever said was actually, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. And that came from my experience of what it was like as I was trying to develop my life as the mother of twins and wanting to figure out what I was going to do. I found that other women were very judgmental about what I was doing and um, would kind of say, why aren't you with your children instead of in the library as you're trying to get your PhD or in the carpool line? Or they'd say things like, my hollandaise sauce is much better than yours and just basically being very judgmental. And then I also found that women uh, sometimes project our own sense of weakness onto other women. And so the title does come from the special place in hell for women who don't help each other. It was so famous, it ended up on a Starbucks cup. So that's where the title comes from. You say in the book that you actually rather regretted those words in those particular circumstances, the moment they came out of your mouth, but you stand by the sentiment. Well, I, I actually, I'll tell you what happened is that um, I would, whenever I said it, I'd get a lot of applause and a lot of women in the audience that appreciated it. The time that it didn't work, and I hadn't uh, focused on that enough, is uh, during the primaries in 2016, um, and I was with Hillary in New Hampshire, and I started the sentence, and people started applauding, and so they didn't hear me saying, uh, what I said, which was to her, which was because of all the things you've done for women, you're going to end up in the other place. But there were those people who chose to refer to it or describe it in a totally different way. I have never said it means you should vote for every woman. And there's certainly a lot of women that I would not vote for. It's kind of help women, but I'd, uh, I hadn't focused on the on the setting, I guess, or the applause or whatever, but it uh, came back to haunt me, that's for sure. 
I mean, you say uh, in the book you don't want to obsess about gender, so I, I try not to talk about it too much, but just to st- stick with that for a, a moment or two longer. You said for eight years you marched down corridors in the department that were lined with paintings of men. You often fantasised that the walls shook a little when you passed, that the fraternity of bewhiskered old dudes would eventually call security and have you kicked out of their club. But now we have a, the club is getting bigger and other women joining your name. Do, do you feel optimistic that there's changes on that front, that it's more inclusive? I do think that it's more inclusive. It was very funny, like um, 10 years ago now, my youngest granddaughter uh, said, so what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Olding girls are Secretary of State. And that was with uh, Condi and Hillary. Uh, And then there were some boys that were trying to show that they could be Secretary of State. But basically, there are more women foreign ministers around the world and more women that are in high-level posts. Um, And so I do think that things are changing, but I do believe that it's important for women to work with each other, but obviously with men in so many different ways, and a co-ed way of doing things is the best way to get things done. Yes, I mean, there's been talk about, you say often actually during your memoir, that you felt and women often feel that in order to fit in, they'd have to sort of emulate men. Uh, but now there's a sense they bring different kind of attributes to the table. Do you think, I've heard you talking about the fact that obviously other countries, people have talking about this, led by women, have had a lot of success during this current crisis. Um, my, my male friends tell me not to read anything into that. What, what do you think? Well, what's, maybe it's just a coincidence, but what is interesting is the number of countries that have actually been able to deal with the virus are the ones that are run by women. You know, whether it's New Zealand or Taiwan or Germany, uh, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, and they are run by women. And I think, uh, and I've been asked, what does that mean? How come? And I really do think that women do approach things somewhat differently than men. And for instance, I think one of the things that's there, as women come to power, Uh, or go up the scale, women do it not by being egotists and saying, I'm smarter than you are, uh, you know, and I'm going to get this done, but kind of trying to be helpful, dependable, uh, and not be egotistical. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is true is that women are, by virtue of all the things that have to happen, if you're a mother or working and doing a number of different things, multitasking. And multitasking allows you to have peripheral vision. And Kind of see what things are coming and what you have to do. I, I do think that these are gross generalizations that men have a capability of thinking deeper about one subject, but I do think women are better at the peripheral vision and multitasking. I also do think that there is a tendency among women to actually believe facts and science and make decisions based on that. Uh, and then, this is very obvious, is If they have a number of children, they don't pit one group of children against another group of children. And there is a desire to have some way of looking at things together. And I just find it very interesting. Uh, I didn't make up the facts about what is happening with the virus and how successful those countries that have women, um, how successfully they're dealing with it. So I do think there's certain aspects. I don't know whether this holds for a British audience, but one of the things I'm often asked is, Would the world be better off if it were only run by women? And I say, if you think that, you've forgotten high school. So I actually do think it's better to have us working together. And um, 
I was going to come to this later, but uh, I've, I, it's, it's so, it begs asking now, your pin that you're wearing today. I mean, one of the things that you were very reluctant to do was to write a, an entire book about your pins and then uh, a, a museum tour followed. Um, I think that was because of your idea that, you know, for equal treatment, you should emulate men and men wouldn't write a book about their ties. But luckily you did. What is the significance of the pin that you're wearing today? Well, let me just give a little bit of background. What happened is I clearly like jewelry and I get to the United Nations in 1993 and the um, war in Iraq, um, the Gulf War, had the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And my job was to make sure the sanctions stayed on. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and uh, we wanted to make sure the sanctions stayed on. So every single day I said something terrible about Saddam Hussein which he deserved. So all of a sudden, there was a poem in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them, an unparalleled serpent. So I had a snake pin, and I started wearing the snake pin whenever we talked about Iraq. And when the press asked about it, I explained what I just told you. And then I thought, well, this is fun. I was living in New York, and I went out, and I bought a lot of costume jewelry to depict whatever I thought was going to happen on any given day. And on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, carnivorous animals and spiders and things. And the other ambassadors figured it out. And they'd say, uh, what are we going to do today? And I'd say, read my pins. And that's how it all started. And it really did become a, uh, a tool in my toolkit in terms of what I was. I won't go through all the stories. But this particular pin has great relevance. What happened in this book Hell and Other Destinations, I write about the fact that I actually spent World War II in London during the Blitz. Uh, we lived in Notting Hill Gate before it got fancy, and I spent every night in the cellar of this uh, apartment house that's on Kensington Park Road. Uh, and my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat who was working with the government in exile, and his job was to broadcast over BBC into Czechoslovakia. So as a little girl, I listened to BBC, and I actually thought my father was in the radio. And every BBC uh, um, broadcast began with kettle drums, and it was the first notes of Beethoven's fifth, da-da-da-dum, which in fact is Morse code for victory, which is why I decided to wear a V victory pin. And we were talking actually before we were, were broadcasting about there's been a, a lot of people have compared this current crisis to the war and you were saying that there, there are similarities that you feel in terms of living through both. Well I keep trying to figure out my parents for instance who came from Czechoslovakia in, in uh, the summer of 1939 after the Nazis had invaded Czechoslovakia. They had had fairly comfortable lives. They came and they uh, were isolated in many ways. As I said we lived in this apartment building. Uh, my father spoke English. I don't think my mother spoke very much. And then we moved out to Walton-on-Thames, and uh, we lived with another family. And I think my parent and, and uh, my father was an air raid warden, and we had one. It was called a Morrison table, which was a metal table that if you had in a house and you slept under it, you'd be okay, or the house, uh, you were protected. So, And I, what I learned from my parents is they couldn't control the bombs. 
but they did and could control their behavior, uh, and that that was the one thing they could control. And in many ways, most of us had no control over how the virus began. Uh, we don't, we're not quite sure how it is, keeps spreading. The only thing we have control over is our behavior. And so I do think that speaks a lot generally to how one behaves in difficult times and that uh, we all want to have some kind of control, but our control can only truly be about our behavior. And I want to come back, as I say, and, and certainly look more at uh, our control and perhaps the control or, or the behavior of our leaders during this time. But just to quickly understand how you got from this uh, upbringing that you described to become Secretary of State. You said that you were growing up when you arrived in New York and you were living in New York and Washington in the 1960s. A career in foreign policy was beyond your imagination. In those days, the only way to have a diplomatic impact was to host a reception and pour tea on an unfriendly ambassador's lap. So how did you do it? Well, it truly never occurred to me that uh, I would be able to have the kind of positions that I had. When we came to the United States, I was 11 years old. And by the way, I have to tell the story because I sounded like you. And uh, we came on November 11th, 1948. And after that, we have Thanksgiving. And there's this hymn that everybody sings. And I was in uh, sixth grade, elementary school. And we were singing, we gather together. And then I heard somebody asking for God's blessing. And I thought, who's asking? And it turns out I was asking, and from then on I asked. Uh, and I, I had a very British accent, and I, I just wanted to fit in was what I was doing. Anyway, I come from a family that is endlessly interested in foreign policy. I actually wanted to be a journalist, and I won't go through that whole story, but I ended up basically going to graduate school and being very interested in American politics. And I slowly kind of made my way up by being helpful and dependable in many different ways. Also, I have to say with a huge amount of good luck in terms of people that I knew. And one of the ways that I kind of got, I worked uh, on Capitol Hill for a man called Senator Edmund Muskie, who was a senator from Maine that had run as vice president to Hubert Humphrey and then was thinking about running for president himself. And then what happened was my professor at Columbia, where I got my graduate degree, was Vignev Brzezinski. And he was the national security advisor. And I'm in the job on Capitol Hill, and I get this phone call from him. And, and he said, how would you like to come and work in the executive branch? And I thought everybody was listening to me. And I thought, no, I love what I'm doing now. And then I went out into the hall where there was a telephone booth, which most people have no idea what I'm talking about. And called him back and said, I, I am kind of interested. And I got this amazing job working in the White House for President Carter, looking at congressional relations and foreign policy and how it worked politically. And so that was a great breakthrough. And then basically that one thing led to another and I was dependable and I didn't mind if I was asked to make coffee and I worked very hard, and I loved foreign policy, and I loved the politics of foreign policy. And I got to know Bill Clinton when he came to help Michael Dukakis, who was running for the presidency, prepare for his debate. And Bill Clinton had gone to Georgetown, and I was teaching at Georgetown. So literally one thing led to another. And so I first became ambassador of the United Nations, uh, and I was a cabinet member during that period. 
and then later I was made Secretary of State. So I can explain it all, but I never occurred to me that it would happen. And if there are people who think I plotted the whole thing, no way. It never occurred to me. And I'd like to, since you have left, you know, you may no longer be the Secretary of State now, but it's clear from the pages of your book that you devote a great deal of time thinking about and acting on what you could do and, and, and what you would do to deal with the situations we found ourselves in since you've left. You say every day when you read about an international crisis, you reflectively insert your name in place of the current Secretary of State and wonder what you would do if you were in their shoes. And I know that you have a number of clubs, for example, where you meet up with former ministers and, and retired uh, military people and former ambassadors with a mission to, to, to work out what you would be trying to accomplish were you still in power. So I'd love to look at the sorts of things that you, your ideas and thoughts about where we're at now and where we should be going. I mean, of course, this is certainly the current situation about leadership and this has been a real test of leadership across the globe. I have an inkling I might know your answer, but uh, how would you say that, that your leader has approached this crisis and what would have been your advice along the way? You're asking how President Trump would approach yeah. this. Yes. Um, I, I have to say I am stunned beyond belief at his lack of uh, a sense about uh, America's role and what we should be doing. And uh, one of the things as former diplomat, I know it's not exactly appropriate to criticize your president when you are speaking to a foreign audience, but it is pretty obvious. And I'm very troubled by the kind of things that are going on in terms of a lack of understanding about the importance of America's role and how we work with allies and friends and how we deal with what are increasingly complicated situations that uh, President Clinton was the first one to say that we were the indispensable nation. It's just that I said it so often that it became identified with me. But there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It just means that we need to be engaged and a part of it and to have a lot of partners, which is something that I saw uh, when I was at the UN and then as Secretary of State, absolutely essential. And what troubles me about uh, Trump in many parts, but one is that he uh, basically thinks that the United States is a victim of everybody and that we're being taken advantage of. And I don't believe that. And I believe that uh, we are absent, AWOL, absent without leave uh, in many ways. And then we're surprised if the Chinese are filling the vacuum or that we don't have an influence over what is happening in terms of dealing with some of the crises. And it is all going to be even more germane as we try to figure out what the post-pandemic world is going to look like and what America's role is going to be like. I do teach, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to teach the course uh, this fall when we go back either in reality or virtually. Well, that's what I, I wanted to come to. I mean, there's a major conference this week on the future of democracy, and it will be addressed by the current U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who, who features in this book when I think he called you in 2017 to fire you from the CIA uh, External Advisory Board. But, you know, China policy will likely be at the top of the agenda. And from a diplomatic perspective, I'm wondering whether you feel this sort of hostile rhetoric aimed at China has been an appropriate way to deal with them. What would you be advocating? Well, let me just say 
that uh, I have been through enough campaigns to know that China is often being criticized during campaigns, and then you try to figure out what relationship you're going to have. The point is that this administration has been in office before the campaign, and it's had some ups and downs in the relationship with China. And I also, in the past, China has not been, as is now known as the rising power uh, with a functioning economy and a, and a big reach through the Belt and Road policies. And so I am worried about where this is going in terms of our relationship with the Chinese. And I know in, in reading the official documents of this administration, they do see China as the major threat. And yet there are issues that cannot be dealt with without their cooperation. So one of the things that is the art of statecraft is being able to find areas where you can cooperate and then those where you have to compete. And they're both in the Chinese relationship. I do think that uh, we need to cooperate on how to deal with the virus and also with climate change and issues of proliferation. But there are problems in terms of what the Chinese are doing in the South and East China Sea, how they are behaving on a number uh, of issues, and also, obviously, their human rights records. So what I'm troubled by is that it's a very unidimensional relationship that the Trump administration has with the Chinese. And I'm hoping that there will be a different administration to deal with them after uh, January. Well, I want to come on to wonder what you think might happen and whether you do think there'll be a different administration. Just sticking with, with now and another sort of thing in the mix really is obviously of these protests. It's been uh, over a few weeks since the murder of George Floyd. And it's perhaps another situation you didn't envisage when you were writing the book. But you do talk about... Uh, in the book, for example, when you were at uh, the inauguration of President Obama and you say his followers were imagining a far more profound transformation in American society and in their own lives than they were likely to see and that they went on to see. Are these initial protests something that come as a complete surprise to you or is this a, a, a bubbling under that you were very much waiting to come to the surface? Well, let me say I do think as somebody who obviously grew up in the United States and there have been various elements of problems in terms of uh, racial discrimination and uh, the past, America's past, and various times uh, when there have been demonstrations, I won't go through the history, people know it, but Martin Luther King and a number of different aspects and the beatings that, that happened. I do think, because there's no way to describe the, the really remarkable moment of President Obama's election and then his inauguration. And there was nothing but hope in terms of, uh, as it was called, the audacity to hope and that things were going to be different. Uh, what, unfortunately, there has been, um, and, and we've spent an awful lot of time in the United States now of people going over the history of discrimination and really kind of feeling that things were covered up. I do think the combination of the virus, which in many ways has taken its toll mostly against African-American and colored people in the United States because of poverty and, and um, the way that the neighborhoods are set up. And then uh, there have been very serious problems with the use of force against uh, African-Americans and the tragedies of people um, having been killed or 
uh, punished for something that they hadn't done. And so, and what the power of the police is. And then what happens was this horrible murder of George Floyd and, and what that showed and people coming out and demonstrating. And I do think that uh, the demonstrations are peaceful. I think what is happening is they, there are many subjects that are now appropriately under discussion that have to be dealt with. I think the United States is be, or Amer many of the American people are being more honest with ourselves about this, but it is totally different uh, in terms of the numbers that are involved, the issues that are out there being discussed in terms of poverty, education, health, uh, what is the relationship with the police, and then that whole issue with the military, and a president who doesn't seem to get it. And so they're really, it, it's very deep. It has been very deep. It's now uh, come up, and it's something that has to be dealt with in terms of America in so many different ways. I have been now involved in many, many discussions and will continue to do so, obviously. But it is something that is very deeply felt at this time. And Black Lives Matter and what it happens and how we deal with uh, the police. You, you say a president who doesn't know how to deal with it. I mean, do you think this massive things will be deciding the things we've discussed, you know, the handling of the, of the crisis and the, the protests. Do you think that they will be deciding factors in the election, the upcoming election? Or do you think that Trump supporters are Trump supporters and, and they will stick with him? Well, it's very hard to tell. I think that, you know, I, I listen to um, various shows and follow some of the polling is that some of the people, I was very surprised when suburban women were for uh, Trump uh, in the last election. Uh, but apparently they are becoming disenchanted, but we don't know. And I think part of the issue, and this is a very hard part to talk about because among other things, you were saying things that I'm involved in. I'm chairman of the board of an organization called the National Democratic Institute that works on democracy abroad and the importance of voting and the rule of law and the role of a free press. And all of a sudden, we are here concerned about how elections take place, what happens if people can't get to the polls because of what's happening with the virus, or uh, as we just saw in Georgia where the election, um, uh, they couldn't count the votes, or the whole issue about mail-in. And so there are a number of things that are very troubling and what has to happen is that those of us that are politically inclined, we need to understand, and, and I never thought I'd say this, of the uh, complications and dangers that go with not having a free vote in the United States. And, I mean, was it just after the last vote, I think you, you joined us, uh, or, or quite shortly afterwards when you picked up your pen to write your last book. I mean, you, you touch in this book on the various books you've written along the way, but you certainly talk a lot about fascism, a warning. Uh, and I know that in the last election, you say afterwards your closest friends rearranged furniture, watched television reruns, and with a pathological glint in their eyes, stalked and murdered aphids. But you chose to pick up your pen and write, and the book you wrote was Fascism, a Warning. And your fear then was, as, you, as you're discussing, that democracy and the institutions that safeguard it were beginning to be eroded uh, and that we were advancing on a road towards something that looked like fascism in America and um, in the UK with Trump and, and Brexit. 
Do you think now that um, we are advancing further along that road, are those people on the far right becoming more emboldened as they've been given Trump and being given Brexit? And, and you look at the counter protests, perhaps, for evidence of that. Well, I do think, and let me just say why I, I did write that book, was because I was seeing evidence of uh, what was happening, some due to the fact that uh, I was saying there were kind of two mega trends and their downside. There was globalization, which most of us have benefited from, but is viewed as faceless. And so people wanted to know what their identities were, which is fine. We all want to know what our background is. But if my identity hates your identity, it becomes nationalism and hyper-nationalism is very dangerous. And you don't want any of those immigrants coming into your country. And then there is the technology issue, which also has managed to connect people an awful lot, but at the same time has disaggregated voices. And so people don't know where they're getting their information from and are uh, trying to figure out what the facts are. So I began to see the effect of that in some societies in terms of uh, in Europe with Orban in Hungary and some in Poland and then in um, the Philippines with Duterte. And by the way, somebody today uh, is now being convicted of sedition, a woman that believed in a free press in the Philippines. And then what happened in Venezuela. Uh, and, and I think, so I got worried. I went back and I did research about how Mussolini and Hitler really came to power. What is interesting, they both came to power constitutionally. And I do think that is something that has to be watched out for. And the best quote in that book is from Mussolini. He said, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. And I was very concerned about that there were, you know, just one thing here and one thing there. I think something that is happening now that is different is that there is noticeable change in the way people see what the far right is doing, frankly. They blame the far left. But I do think the divisions in the society are very serious. There are issues, but I am very, I have to say, I don't know even how to describe this. The, what brought this change to mind was horrible with the murder of this young man. But I, I am hopeful that there's these demonstrations and organization and people knowing that we have to do something different, that there will be something that moves this forward so that we are not a totally divided society that is hyper-nationalist, that decides that there is a group of people that you can't deal with, that we are not looking for unifying themes. And I think this is a very, very delicate and important time to consider what is going on in the U.S. and in other countries, frankly. And, and you know, I said before that you, you spend a lot of time thinking about what you would do, but you also obviously do spend a lot of time thinking about what you actually can do. And, and you've spoken about immigration, which in the book you talk, of course, as a refugee yourself, you, you find the idea that the US is becoming less welcoming to international homeless very hard. And you, you look at the Statue of Liberty, which you saw when you arrived, and, and you say you imagine her with, with tears in her eyes. But... What do you feel is, is the solution? Because there is a great deal of grievances against people coming in from other, other countries. That, that's what Trump has spoken to. Well, I think that people, frankly, don't leave their countries because I think most people want to live in the country where they were born. They are, have left because they um, were being persecuted or 
couldn't make a living or and I think are very willing to be good citizens when they arrive. What I found very interesting is reading an article this morning about how Prime Minister Trudeau uh, wants to do something to be grateful to the immigrants in Canada who have been the front line in dealing with the virus um, and trying to figure out whether something could be done to make their status more permanent. And I do think that if one analyzes things, that people want to come to a new country to be helpful. I have to say, I was very troubled, obviously, by Brexit and saying, you know, why should we have all these polls or whatever uh, the main problem was. And I, and I do think that countries are better off. Every country has a right to make its uh, laws about naturalization and, and bringing in immigrants and refugees. But I do think that it's important to try to figure out why this is happening and not just decide all of a sudden that the refugees are the ones that are undermining society. I think on the contrary, they want to be helpful. And when you say that you feel that the answer to the question of whether the, Trump, uh, the, the harm that Trump is causing to America's reputation and interests and ability to ra- rally others will prove temporary or, or lasting is in our hands. You say it depends less on him than us. Do you mean the us of the population or you? Do you feel that you have agency at the moment and, and we have agency to make change? A lot of people feel very helpless. Well, I think I have to say the following thing. Um, you describe how I described myself um, in the book. I now have a shorter version of it and six words. Um, I say a worried optimist, a problem solver, and a grateful American. And I do think that what is essential now is to recognize what I said earlier, which is our behavior is something that we have control over. I think there are ways to be a problem solver in this, to work with those who do want change and to have the change be something that responds to the problems that are out there that in a democracy work through Congress or in our, in America's case, with the governors and the states and the mayors and the various elected officials at levels um, throughout the, the system and that democracy is not a spectator sport. If you want to change something, you have to move and do something and talk to people and, and try to figure out how to solve the problems. I really, um, I say this in the book, is it took me a very long time to find my voice. I now have it and I'm not going to be quiet. And so I'm going to try to express what I think needs to be done in terms of uh, having the deal with the problems in the United States, but also America's role in the world how we operate with other countries, not to limit ourselves in, for instance, criticizing human rights problems in China with the Uyghurs or with Hong Kong just because we aren't doing things properly here. And to find alliances with the Europeans to talk about the importance of a value system in a country where the people need to be a part of it and to have resiliency. I think that's the most important part in terms of behavior, resiliency and to work with others and to be problem solvers. And you say in the book that, and we haven't dwelled on him too much, um, we've, we've, we've skirted around, you don't want to waste too much time on Trump. You say that he repels you more than he interests you. But as you also say, he as a character and a figure is, is, is too hard to escape. But you say his foreign policy, we've talked about a little bit, is, is less strategy than a style. And what is this style that you see? You say it's a sort of 
cunning and, and calculated style and people who who say he you know is 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 not thinking carefully are, are wrong do, do you see that any of it does it actually work well i don't think it works i think it might work with a, a group of americans who are feeling that we've been taken advantage of but it repels uh those of us that have any understanding of foreign policy in america's role and it repels our allies um I th and confuses our allies and I don't know, you know, I don't think it, it particularly scares our adversaries. It is episodic in many ways and very and overly personal uh, and a lack of historical context for things. I have to say I was stunned. Yesterday, Trump spoke at West Point um, and uh, he wanted us not to be involved abroad. And he used a term, believe it or not, that came from Neville Chamberlain after Munich. Uh, in 1938. Why should we care about people in faraway places? And so I think that no idea of context and kind of thinking that it's important whether he is popular with X leader and the only one he really seems to be very popular with is Putin. So um, the kind of alliance of those who are authoritarian is something that troubles me. I can tell you from my own experience, it's very helpful to have good relations with the people that you deal with and you have a bilateral diplomatic meeting and you start out very pleasantly and you talk about things you might have in common. But I had this trick and I finally said, I have come a long way, so I must be frank and would talk about the human rights issues. I think from what I can tell, Trump decided that he was gonna pull out troops, American troops from Germany because he felt insulted that Angela Merkel wasn't coming to a G7 meeting. There's nothing about his determination to pull the troops that seems to have come out of any uh, operational decision-making process. And having been in the White House for, with uh, Brzezinski for the Carter uh, administration, and then later when during the Clinton administration, there has been a way for those that help the president in finding out the facts about national security policy to actually have some kind of strategic meetings and talk to the president about what would come of making X decision, what was the downside of it, what were the unintended consequences of the decision. And maybe this goes on, but as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of system to what is happening at the moment, which is scary given the fact that the world's a mess, which is a diplomatic term of art. Well, that's, I mean, that's, you, you, you talk about your course that you teach. You said it's called the National Security Toolbox, and it's, it's a process-designed national security decision-making to take as much information together uh, as possible in advance of, of really very important judgments. And now policies do seem to be picked up and abandoned at sort of presidential whim. I mean, is there any method in, in the madness that you could detect? I, I can't tell. I really can't. There's been a, a lot of national security advisors. Um, there have been some very evident recent problems between the president and the military. And I was just uh, Bob Gates, the former secretary of defense and a former colleague of mine when we worked for Brzezinski together, was saying that uh, in a new book where he was talking about the fact of trying to look at what's in the toolbox, that it isn't just the military. And so I have not seen anything. I have to say, when I became secretary, the first person to call me was Henry Kissinger. But the bottom, and then he, by the way, to go back to something that you said earlier, 
he introduced me and he said, Madeline, welcome to the fraternity. And I said, guess what, Henry? It's not a fraternity anymore. But, but I do think, and I was in touch with all my predecessors, and I think it's important, not that I'm dying to be cold, but I do think it's important to be in touch. By the way, I, I think your audience probably might have been at a certain stage watching Madam Secretary, um, the show. And last year, uh, Colin Powell and Hillary Clinton and I were doing the show, and it was all very scripted about um, the, the Secretary of State calling us all in because something horrible had happened at the White House. And I got an unscripted line in. As we sat down, I said, isn't it great? When the current Secretary of State calls her predecessors in to consult, we used to do that all the time. And I do think that there's there's no sense of what the system is. And so yes, yeah, so so you're saying you're you're not you're not being called in. And Definitely not. <laughs> but um unfortunately I think I'm going to have to turn in, in very shortly to to questions from the audience but you end your your memoir here and you know i said you you want to keep one exciting thing after another i think you end by just saying what's next what is next well i I hope i can get out from this house arrest but but what is next is that i really do think that things are going to be very very different in so many aspects after uh, these crises and we do have a choice between hell and other destinations. I think that we need to look at what will be different in the international system, what the tools are going to be. And when I'm asked about what does make me an optimist is the next generation. My students who are uh, come from all over the world, who have uh, speak a number of languages, who have been traveling, who understand, who understand. Uh, the role of the U.S. and their own countries will have to be different, and they are totally tech-savvy. What I find interesting, the things that we criticize them from for being online all the time and not understanding privacy is something that is going to stand them in good stead. So I am looking forward to teaching, spending time with them, and working with the organizations that I am a part of, the National Democratic Institute and some of the, the various think tanks, and doing the following thing, uh, which is as decisions are made to bring in the private sector, not only the the corporations and businesses, but non-governmental organizations and individuals who have a lot of ideas, because we need to broaden the circle of the decision makers and at the same time have discussions with everybody about the direction of the national strategy and recognize that we're better off with friends and allies than just thinking everything is a zero-sum game. Do you feel optimistic, too, that you can make the current administration listen? I mean, you talk about think tanks and all those um, various organizations in the book, but can you have a a line uh, to the current administration that will be listened to? Are are there any open ears? Um, I have no idea, frankly. I do think some of the people that did have open ears um, have left. General Mattis... You know, a number of people, I honestly, uh, I think that it's very hard to tell at the moment. I do think what is important, our Constitution, the first article of the Constitution has to do with the powers of Congress. And I have spent a lot of time, especially on the House side, I'm going to do that later this week also, to talk about the refugee situation and the whole role of the United States in assistance. I've done a number of issues to do with that, and democracy, and about authoritarianism. 
And I keep saying it's Article One time. I also am very happy to go and talk to various governors and mayors. And, and so I believe in, as I said earlier, democracy is not a spectator sport. And I'm happy to have discussions with people about how to find some other destinations beyond hell. Very quickly, then, you might explain what is Article 1 time for those who don't understand. You know, article 1 is the first article of the Constitution that does, in fact, give an incredible amount of power to the Constitution because uh, the Americans didn't want to have a monarchy. And Article 2 is about the power of the executive branch, the commander-in-chief. It's interesting to read those two articles uh, because um, sometimes it's called an invitation to struggle in terms of the way that the powers are allocated. But it does require something that I find most interesting about our government, our executive legislative relations, having spent time on both sides of, the, as we say, Pennsylvania Avenue, whether you're on Capitol Hill or, or downtown. And so I find that a, a part that in American history has had a lot of interesting roles. And this is a time, I think, to get more people having those discussions about the direction of the country. And I think this is the part that I keep saying is that domestic and foreign policy are not like two things in totally different boxes. They go together. The American people need to understand why it's important for the United States to be involved in the world and the world needs to see and understand that we are dealing with some existential issues at the moment in the United States and that we need help in terms of friends and allies. I'm very reluctantly going to bring up my Q&A box now and, and um, turn over uh, to, to other questions. I only say reluctantly because I'm sure that there would be so much more we could discuss, but there are a number of questions coming in. And um, to anyone who, whose question doesn't get answered, I apologize. And I should also say that we will be sending a, a recording of this talk out afterwards and there'll also be a link to a lovely independent bookshop where you can where you can buy the book and which you're encouraged to do you've you've touched on on this but um i'll ask uh, again somebody says with the current incumbent of the white house fostering division what would be your message to your grandchildren about the future and to your grandchildren's generation about the future well i really do think my message and i do this with my grandchildren is to talk about the opportunities that are there, that democracy requires to be a part of things, to have ideas, to talk to. And I think a very important part is to talk to people with whom you disagree, um, not to kind of tolerate them, but to try to figure out what makes them believe what they do. And that it's very important in a country like ours to uh, understand the importance of the rule of law and the role of a free press and respect for others, uh, and participation, and the need for resiliency, and that in a democracy, you have to play a role. You don't just wait and complain, that you really do have to be a part, uh, to be a problem solver, and not a problem maker. You talked about fascism, of course. Some, somebody asked, are Americans living in full fascism? I know that one of the things you, you say is that it, it, when you came to, to promote and you were doing the tour of your last book, everybody asked you, you know, is Trump himself a fascist? And your, your answer to that was, was no, but, but that you feel it's coming close. What would you say to, to, to this uh, girl who asked whether you know, Americans are living in full fascism? No, I don't think we are. I do think that what is happening um, is that we have a president 
who has no, who doesn't seem to have any democratic tendencies, um, and who seems in so many ways to be an undemocratic president. But uh, we are able to have, and we've just seen incredible uh, way of, dem- of the peaceful demonstrations that are going on, and a desire by a variety of, of officials and uh, private individuals and the press at a number of different levels to make a change. So. Uh, and to have discussions. So I do not think, but I do think, to go back to the chicken, that a lot of feathers have been plucked and we have to be very careful. Someone asks about Joe Biden and your advice, what it would be to him. I know you have been there on a number of of, uh, election campaigns, election trials. What would be your choice of a vice presidential candidate? Your advice on that, somebody asks. Well, he said that he wanted to have a woman uh, vice presidential candidate. I did work for the only time that that happened with Geraldine Ferraro with Walter Mondale, and I'm I'm glad that he is he made that decision. But I'm not going to get in the middle of who it should be. But I have known Joe Biden for a very long time. We worked together when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He understands national security policy better than anyone, and he also and we've seen this because this is something that's been missing at the moment. He has unbelievable empathy for those who are, have gone through difficulties and is somebody that uh, appreciates being able to talk to people and listen to them in terms of what their needs are. And so he's going to have an awful lot of work to do. And that's why I'm doing everything I can uh, in terms of having people understand what an incredibly important choice. And Everybody always says this is the most important election in our lifetime. This one actually is. Talking about elections, um, and obviously, as you've said, you you still sit, I think, on the National Democratic Institute. Is that that right? Chairman of the board. Yes, Chairman of the board. And the, the, um, you know, obviously, how democracy functions is a huge and important part of your everyday life. Someone is asking about the system, the fact that obviously uh, US presidents are elected not by individual votes, but by the electoral electoral college, they say these are not words. Is a complete subversion of democracy, and how does that not make the entire idea of an American democracy a sham? Well, it's a complicated system. It is definitely not a sham. There's an awful lot of history being talked about recently, and it was something that came up when there were um, creations of how the country would be governed. That various parts of the United States that did not have large populations um, and that represented different parts of the country. That is how it happened. There are people who believe that the Electoral College should be uh, dismissed or uh, dis- uh, and some changes should be made. We have an awful lot on our plate at the moment. I do think that America is a vibrant democracy. We are at the moment um, in terms of a massive discussion, and I don't think anybody should think that Uh, the democracy itself is something that is not inherent in American thinking. But clearly it is a difficult time and the kinds of demonstrations and things that have been going on now are incredibly important and and I believe are going to lead to some very important discussions and changes. Somebody else is asked about the very difficult uh, economic times we're going to face or we've started facing and whether you feel your optimism for sort of societal and cultural changes become harder because of those. I think there's no question that um, uh, 
every time I read the newspapers, it's about the very serious economic issues that are going to last for quite a long time. And a lot are things that have to do, obviously, with jobs and people's identification with what it is they're doing, how they're able to make a living. I do think this is going to require an awful lot of work and understanding. And I think in, in gradual uh, graduate school, there's always these discussions about what comes first, political development or economic development. They go together because democracy has to deliver. People want to vote and eat. And so these are going to be issues that have to be dealt with and not in the way that they have been recently where there is kind of this, there's the 1% that's very rich. Um, and then there are all the others uh, who I find it so, as somebody that is a, an immigrant to this country, and as I said, grateful in terms of the way that there were so many, are so many people in the United States, even before this uh, horrible pandemic, that uh, were not able to make a living. And partially because of technology or the, not an education that is helpful in an entirely different world. So there are an awful lot of things to do, which do require very important and deep political changes. And I'm hoping that this election will make a huge difference in that regard. On that, a lot of people's concern, a lot of people uh, ask for words of hope, which I think you've given, but a lot of people feel very concerned about the way climate change is dealt with. I know you say in the book that most issues profit from a clash of opinions, but global warming is a scientific fact and politicians who've denied its reality should cringe every time their children gaze at them. People are asking uh, 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 more than one about what your advice would be to a, a new candidate and how they should be dealing with that. Well, I think it was very clear that the Obama-Biden administration was interested in climate change and the Paris Agreement. Uh, I think there is something else that's been going on throughout this pandemic is that there seems to be some discussion as to science versus ignorance. And uh, science is winning um, in terms of people understanding that one has to have scientific knowledge, not only about the virus, but obviously about climate change. And that there will be, under uh, a Biden administration, a real sense that it has to be dealt with. And by the way, there's only no one country alone can deal with climate change. It is, of all issues, a multilateral issue and trying to sort out what the mechanism is for doing something. And I would, it's going to be front and center. There's no question with a, a new democratic administration. Uh, an interesting question that's been asked by, by more than one person. So I'm, I'm going to voice that may not apply to, to everyone. And I'm sorry for that. But is the advice you would have for uh, American diplomats currently serving abroad? Well, I have to say they are in a very difficult position. Um, and I, I have great sympathy for them. By the way, I used to say when, when my time was up being Secretary of State, I was very envious of the diplomats who got to stay, and I had to leave. And I hadn't focused on the fact that some of them might be working for uh, policies that they disagree with. But I do think that our diplomats, for the most part, are really people who are honored to represent the United States. I think that they uh, are obviously under a certain amount of pressure, and it's difficult. But I think that one of the things you asked previously, what would it be like if I were Secretary of State now? This would be one that's very hard to put yourself into since there has been 
uh, a combination of saying by Pompeo that we have to do better by the, the State Department and swagger, and then he doesn't do anything. And so, and criticizes those diplomats um, when they go and up to the hill and talk about what's going on. So it's a very, very difficult time. And I have high respect for those diplomats that are able to work under these conditions, and I respect them. Um, are you able to continue for another minute, few minutes or so, which I'm, I'm being asked to push a little bit more time into the schedule? Is that all right with you? Definitely fine, yes. Thank you. Well, I, I'll just ask, I mean, somebody asks, uh, a few people have asked, so I, I feel I should, I should ask it, your, your thoughts on, on our leader, on, on Boris Johnson. Um, I know that you say in the book that uh, effective high-level leaders are in short supply. You look around, where are they? Downing Street, question mark, Rome, question mark. What do you think of Boris Johnson? And I would add to that, where do you see effective leaders when you look out? Well, I have been, I have to, I shouldn't interfere in the internal affairs of our special relationship. I know, please do. No, but I, I have been troubled by some of the things that have happened. And I uh, obviously sympathetic in terms of that he was sick um, with the virus. Uh, but I think that there needs to be a way that some of the policies I, I have real trouble with. I'm really sorry about Brexit um, and kind of uh, various aspects that are out there. I would have chosen somebody else. But I do think that the British made the, the decision and I and it was done democratically. So. I'm fascinated always by question time, as we see it on TV, and uh, pretty hard, a little bit different than what happens in, in the United States. But I, uh, I have so enjoyed my relationship with British political people. And you, you referred to the fact that I created this group of former foreign ministers. One of the first people to be a part of it was Robin Cook, who was foreign secretary, and now Malcolm Rifkin and David Miliband are a part of my group. So hey. uh, the only thing, I, I had to give a speech in um, Warsaw at a conference, and I was there was a NATO meeting, and there was a, uh, a seminar that was parallel to it. And um, I uh, was talking about, it was going into the Brexit vote, and I said that the thing happened as a result of miscalculation and incompetence. And then I ran into David Cameron, and so... Uh, I probably should keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> well, I think you, you definitely don't have to. One of the things you say in the book is that you are grateful that now uh, you no longer have to. You can, you can uh, vent, I think, are your, are your words. Now you're no longer in office. And talking about venting, even when you are and you, or, or not in office, somebody asks of someone who does tend to vent um, frequently, about Donald Trump, is, is he actually dangerous for the world? Do you feel that? Donald Trump? That is a question, yeah, from somebody, yeah. I think that there are dangers, yes. Um, and I think that there are effects, for instance, when he decides um, to pull out troops, American troops, especially given the kinds of things that are going on in Europe. Uh, and an attempt by uh, Vladimir Putin to undermine democracy in a number of ways and trying to sort out. I do think that it's the, uh, what what is, I, I think the part that is dangerous is that it is very hard for our, as I said earlier, our friends and our adversaries to figure out what the direction is, which then goes back to the question about the diplomats. I mean, um, there are some very difficult situations going on and it depends on the interpretation. 
of how they are taken. And I'm hoping that I, I went to the Munich Security Conference this year in, in March, um, and uh, Pompeo and the Secretary of Defense were there, and they were totally out of stride with everybody else. And I think this is when we're counting on our friends and allies and informal contacts and trying to explain that uh, America is still wanting to be partners with those who want to see um, changes in the 21st century and especially after this pandemic uh, and climate change and all the things we were talking about. I'm going to leave or, or, or end with um, a question that, again, quite a number of people have asked. and we, we talked about it a bit, but I said a lot of people feel helpless. And, and people say, you know, you said that democracy is not a spectator sport. So from where you're sitting, you know, a lot of us have less agency than you. But what would you do or how can you what will you say to, to motivate people to be more involved? This, this person asks with the democratic process. Well, I think it's very important to, first of all, and this is really hard, is determine what the facts are, speak out and also listen and talk to people with whom you disagree, but not say, okay, this is just going to pass. And there is this cliche is to make a crisis an opportunity. And I think that is true in a number of countries and the importance of speaking out and peacefully making clear about what you think and the changes that have to be there. Voting, participating in a variety of local activities and not not being passive. Uh, I think being passive is a really uh, very dangerous thing and to know what's going on and to have active discussions and plans with people with whom you agree, but at the same time, as I said, try to figure out what is motivating the others. It's not an easy time. It is definitely not. But I do think it's important to maintain optimism while you worry a bit, but uh, do be optimistic, be resilient, and work with others. I think that's a very motivational and good place to end. So I'd just like to thank everybody who's signed in um, for doing so. And Secretary Albright, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. And I hope your house arrest and ours finishes sooner sooner rather than later. Thank you so very much. This week's podcast starred Madeline Albright and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Join us on any night of the week for more live streams with statesmen and women and a panoply of other iconic thinkers and leaders, including Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel, former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, and many more. Find it all at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.